Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Hey, LifePoint, welcome. So thrilled to have you with us here today. You know, I'm thinking, still thinking about that song, We Just Worship God, uh, too. And, you know, it says, God keeps working. He's a miracle worker. He keeps working. No matter what we see or observe ourselves. he is always working. In fact, all those songs this morning really, really speak to the message uh, that we're talking about today. I didn't even encourage you later in the week to go back and after you hear the message, go back and worship God through uh, the, the, the songs again. I think God will really uh, minister to you and speak to you through the songs. You know, we're going to continue our, our series today called Mountains. We're looking at some of the significant events that took place on mountains in Israel. And here's why. Because whenever God sent someone to a mountain or took someone to a mountain, something big was about to happen. God just uses mountain experiences in our lives. God uses mountain moments in our lives to do big things in us and through us. And today, God is going to take us to the base of the snow-capped mountain of Mount Hermon. Uh, we're going to pick up the story in Matthew chapter 16. You can turn in your Bibles, go on your phone to the YouVersion Bible app, a lot of different places you can turn to. And we're gonna, as you're making your way to Matthew 16, what you would need to know contextually is Matthew 16 is really a turning point, if you will, for Jesus' ministry. What do I mean by that? Well, by this time in Jesus' story... His fame has spread far and wide. The common people have, have really embraced him, thinking he is a great teacher, he's a great miracle worker, but the religious leaders, on the other hand, they think Jesus is a threat to their vested interest. And so they really have made decisions that we need to get rid of Jesus. So in the midst of the growing opposition of the leadership and surrounded by growing crowds who, who like Jesus, but they don't really fully understand who he is, Jesus does something unusual. He gathers his disciples. He leaves the Sea of Galilee area, leaves the, the, you know, the land of Israel and takes them up north and begins to hike up north, hiking 28 miles away into Gentile territory to a city called Caesarea Philippi. Now, what happened there in Caesarea Philippi really was the beginning of changing the course of human history. Now, some of this ancient city of Caesarea Philippi has been excavated now. And in fact, on my last trip to Israel, I've been there quite a few times, but on my last trip, that was the first time I've ever seen the excavated city. Most of the time when I go there, uh, I, I go to the different spot, which is really just outside of the city. And that's where, if you've gone with me on our trips, you go to, the, to that mountain spot, where uh, uh, that hill spot, where the religious center exists, just outside of the city itself. And at the base of this mountain face, you have this you know, beautiful spring and, and the remains of pagan worship centers and worship temples. Now Caesarea Philippi was the worship center, <clears throat> excuse me, was the worship center for, the, for worshiping the Greek god Pan, known as the fertility god of the mountain and the forest. Now, the Greeks named the city Panias after Pan, and, the, and the, the Arabs to this day call the city Banias. The god Pan was, was this half-man, half-goat figure. 
also at the base of this cliff, the worshipers of Pan built these 100-foot-tall statues, or temples, really, and statues that were dedicated to the god, or, of, of Pan, or the god Pan and also to other Greek gods. This spot, this rock, was referred to as the rock of the gods because idols and statues of Pan and other gods and goddesses were literally carved into that very rock face. You can notice that there on the screen. Now, when the Romans conquered this territory, Herod Philip, who was son of Herod the Great, he renamed the city after Caesar Augustus and himself, hence the name Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi, this, this city is located really at the juncture of, of two rivers, the area is surrounded by beautiful vegetation such as grapes, vine, mulberries, and, and various fig trees. And even today, you could easily spend an entire day just admiring the beautiful scenery and the beautiful location. Also, and this is really key to our story today, at the base of this mountain face, at the base of this, spring water flowed back at the time of, of, of Jesus, flowed directly from the mouth of this cave. We got a picture there of you, uh, for you to show you my sons uh, were there on a trip with me. And then also we have some of our law enforcement uh, here from LifePoint who were there on the trip as well. We took them to make sure I was safe. No, I'm just kidding. But, but uh, they were there. And, and so you can kind of get a picture of this rock, this rock face, and, and, and where that spring came out of the cave. Now, the people there believed that the fertility gods lived in the underworld during the winter. And then every spring that they would return to the earth. They believed that this city, Caesarea Philippi, was literally at the gates of the underworld, or uh, we would say it another way, the gates of hell, where the gods would, from this location, travel back and forth from hell or from the underworld to, to the earth. Now, to help entice the return of the god Pan, each spring, the people of Caesarea Philippi engaged in unspeakable sexual deeds, including sexual acts with, with goats. Because again, remember the Greek god Pan was, was half man and half goat. I can't imagine what was going through the minds of the disciples as they left the Sea of Galilee and traveled into Gentile territory. And they kept going and going and going and eventually landing and arriving here at Caesarea Philippi. I'm sure they must have thought, Jesus, why in the world are we here? We've heard awful stories of this place. I mean, come on, Jesus, you know that no good Jew would ever come to this location, to this region, especially this city. Jesus, why bring us to the base of Mount Hermon? Why bring us to this mountain spot? Well, as we have said throughout this series, that when God takes us to mountains, God uses our mountain experiences to grow us, 
to grow our faith, to stretch our faith muscles and to grow us stronger and closer to God. Also, God uses mountain experiences to show us who he is, his characteristics, his attributes. And God also uses mountain experiences to show us his plan for our lives. He reveals that to us. He reveals at least the next direction or the next step he's called us to take. So the disciples grow and show experience at the base of this mountain begins with Jesus asking them a question. And that's where we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at verse 13. And I want you to notice what it says. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Now, the disciples go on to answer Jesus' question. They're, again, they're here in Caesarea Philippi at this pagan center of worship. And as they are there at the city, they begin to give the answers. Who do you think Jesus is? Matthew 16, 14. They, some say John the Baptist. See, that was Herod's answer. Others say that it's Elijah. That was a popular belief at the time because the Jews believed that Elijah would one day return. And still others think you're Jeremiah. He was the greatest of the, of the later prophets. And then there's others who just think you're one of the other prophets. The question for us is, who do people say that Jesus is today? Well, you know, people might say things like, well, you know, Jesus, we, you know, he's, a, he's an important historical figure. He's, a, he's an important spiritual leader. Or some might say he had a, some kind of special relationship with God. Some might say he was a prophet. Some might say he was crazy. And then there's some who have said for 2,000 years that he is Savior and Lord. Now, some of you might recall about 16 years or so ago, the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ uh, by Mel Gibson. He planted the crucifixion of Jesus, you know, center stage in American public, social and public life once again. And for a few fleeting weeks, people were wondering and asking the question, who is Jesus? I remember a few years after that, a guy, by the, an author by the name of Dan Brown came out with a book, The Da Vinci Code. And then after that, a movie came out and his wild speculations about Jesus and the church, it grabbed people's attention once again. And people were asking the question, who is Jesus? Well, today, right now, we have a new miniseries out. It's called The Chosen, and it has once again grabbed people's attention, and people are once again asking the question, who is Jesus? Now, let me just say this. If you have not yet watched The Chosen, I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, it, it's a pretty remarkable uh, miniseries, been crowdfunded, uh, the, the most... Uh, popular crowdfunded or movie or money raised ever. And so it's pretty remarkable about Jesus and his disciples. They're getting ready to do uh, film season two. Uh, write this down if you would, if you're interested in this, go to thechosen.tv, thechosen.tv. You can go from there and check it out or go on YouTube and, and, and find that. Who do people say that Jesus is? But see, this leads to the more important question for you and I this morning. Jesus goes on and says this to his disciples, but what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? You see, that's the real question for us. Who do you think that Jesus is? Your answer, my answer to that question literally impacts our entire life. Peter goes on and he speaks up and he says in Matthew 16, verse 16, he says this to Jesus. 
You are the Messiah or Savior, the Son of the living God. In other words, we heard the responses of the people. We've heard them. We think everybody else has got it wrong. You're not just a prophet. You're not just a holy man. You're the actual Messiah. You're the actual Savior who has come to save us and, and rescue us. You're the Son of God from heaven. Now, of course, after the resurrection, you and I have a more complete understanding of Peter's uh, responding to Jesus of who do you think Jesus is. We have that because we're on the other side of the resurrection. For example, if we just kind of step out of the story for a moment, Paul explains a little bit more of the fullness of Peter's confession this way. And we see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. And it says this. It says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received on which you have taken your stand. Verse 2. By this gospel, you are saved. I want everybody to say saved. Say saved. You're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. And he goes on, verse 3, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. Say died. He died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, say buried, he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, say raised, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at one time. Who is Jesus? Peter said he's the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of the living God, and what does it mean to be Messiah or to be Savior? Paul says it means believing that Jesus died, that he was buried, but then that he resurrected from the dead. To believe Jesus is Savior means that we believe that Jesus is a resurrected Savior. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says it this way, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. You see, a, a Christian, a Jesus follower, is one who confesses that Jesus is the resurrected Christ, the son of the living God. And that confession that we make in our heart, that we make audibly, that confession of faith is then demonstrated in our surrendering of our lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is then Lord of our lives. Who do you say that Jesus is? You see, your genuine answer, not just your words, but from your heart, from the depths of your soul, your genuine answer to that question literally affects and impacts your entire life. Catch this, because if Jesus is truly your Savior and your Lord, then your life is dedicated to serving him to pleasing him and to pleasing him and, and his desires and his wishes and following his commands and his plans and his purposes for your life. Jesus replied in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, he said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for what you just said for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. You didn't figure it out on your own, but by my father in heaven. In other words, you're correct. Remember, God takes us to mountains to, to show us who he is. You're correct. You figure this out. God revealed it to you. I'm showing you who I am. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades 
or the gates of hell will not overcome it. Jesus is also showing us not just who he is, but he's showing us right here his plans. Now, throughout human history, it has been debated on exactly what it is that Jesus meant when he said, on this rock, I will build my church. There are even entire denominations built on a false understanding of what Jesus has said here and what Jesus meant. But for anybody who has been to Caesarea Philippi, the answer is pretty clear as to what Jesus meant. Jesus' words had a clear and obvious meaning to his disciples on that day. His church would be built on this rock. What's that rock? Where were they? Caesarea Philippi, that rock, that mountain face, that rock with, with those false gods. This church will be built on this rock, my church, the rock before them. A rock filled with niches or niches to, to pagan gods where ungodly values, ungodly behavior, ungodly living dominated. In other words, on this rock of ungodly, unfaithful, unholy, anti-godly values, Jesus said, on this I will build my church. And then he goes on in verse 18 and he says, and these gates of Haiti that right where they were standing will not overcome it. They will not prevail. The pagan cultures will not be victorious against my church. Will not be victorious over all that is evil or all that is wicked. None of that will prevail. All that's lost all that's broken and sinful in this world. None of that will prevail over my church, Jesus said. All that's helpless, all that's hopeless. None of that will be victorious over my church, Jesus said. That will all be overcome. I will build my church, Jesus said, on wherever evil resides and God is not present. You see, Jesus was giving his disciples their first glimpse into what would be eventually called the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus said, go make disciples. And he's given us that first glimpse of what that going and making in disciples will involve. Now, can you imagine? I want you to try to picture it with me for a moment. You've seen a few of the pictures of the location. You've seen the, the depiction of what it could have looked like. Can you imagine the impact of that moment as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords stood on those pagan temple steps, listening to the roar of the waterfalls that were coming over the top of the cliff that flowed from down from Mount Hermon. And, and there in front of them was, the, was this, this, this spring, this gate, these gates to the underworld as Jesus declared his superiority over all these forces of darkness right in front of him. Jesus said, I will build my church and these gates of Hades that are right here, they will not prevail. Now, there's something else to consider in this story. Gates were defensive structures in, in, in ancient times. By Jesus saying the gates of hell would not overcome, Jesus was implying that these gates were going to be attacked. 
that there will be an offensive and that the gates will not stop or thwart or prevent the, the church or this offensive moving forward. You see, Jesus was commissioning his disciples. He was commissioning us to a huge task to build his church on the very places that are most filled with moral corruption, to attack wickedness, to penetrate evil. Jesus prevented a, a clear challenge to you and I. He didn't want his, his followers to hide from evil. He wanted us to storm the gates of hell in whatever environments we find ourselves. And you know, Jesus' followers have been doing that for 2,000 years. And as a result, Christianity has literally transformed societies and cultures. You and I have lived in the, in the world of Christianity for 2,000 years. We don't even realize or comprehend how awful, how evil it was. Christianity has penetrated the darkness and the forces of evil. I mean, my brain just starts thinking about some of what it either brought or enhanced or made better. Everything from the rule of law based on God's truth to equality, to the sanctity of life, to individualism, meaning that every human life matters, freedom of speech. I think about the advances in science and medicine and education that came as a result of Christianity the role and importance of women in society and family in society and children in society. It's the church that has founded and funded countless hospitals and shelters and orphanages and food banks and thrift shops and literacy programs and schools and colleges and nursing homes. The world was lost and dark and full of evil and sin. And you know, it still is. But Christians, we, the church, have been storming the gates of hell and penetrating all forms and all aspects of evil for 2,000 years. As Jesus followers, we cannot successfully confront the evil of our world if we're not letting our faith shine out. If we hide our faith or, or perhaps we're even embarrassed to share our faith or to share our values into our culture. In Luke's parallel passage, Jesus said this. He said this. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. You see, Jesus knew. He knew what was coming. If you decided to storm the gates of hell, he knew that you would face ridicule. He knew that you would face persecution. He knew that you would face the anger of those, who, of, of those you tried to confront in the evil and the wickedness. But his words come as a sharp challenge, no matter how fierce the resistance. We're called to not hide our faith. We're called to let our light shine, to let the light of Christ shine in and shine through our, our lives as we penetrate our culture. Now, for the activists among you, as I'm talking right now, man, you are loving this. 
This is kind of part of your rally cry. Like, yes, yes, let's go. Let's penetrate our culture. Let's speak up on behalf of Christ and his values. And let's bring that into our culture and our community. And you're shouting amen. And you're already preparing your email in your head to me. And you're like, hey, pastor, I want to get you. And I want to get the church. And I want you to attend the rallies and, and wear the pins and wear the hats and wear the shirts and sign the petitions. Hold on there, cowboy. All right, hold on for just a moment here. Wonderful. We praise God for you, and we're glad that that's your passion, how God has wired you and moved you and convicted you. But your understanding isn't the only method to live out Jesus' call. Sure, we absolutely have some who God has used in a radical way to literally change or transform cultures and societies. I think about the Wilbur, William Wilberforces who, who ended slavery, you know, in England. I think about the Martin, Martin Luthers. I, and all, there are many, many others. Jump to modern day. I think of someone who speaks at the Global Leadership Summit, Gary Haugen or Hogan. For, he's a president of IJM, International Justice uh, Mission. Man, they're all about ending violence and poverty and slavery against those who are enslaved and ch child slavery and sex slavery and ending all of that. I think about Bob Pierce who started World Vision, Pastor William Booth who started the Salvation Army, Clara Barton who started the Red Cross, Mother Teresa and the Sisters of Mercy. And that's wonderful and God has used them and many like them to change cultures and society. But you know who else God has used? the quiet faithful. God has used those who have been faithful to him, shining the light of Jesus in their setting, on their streets, at their work, in their schools, at the, in, their, in their communities. You see, the reality is most are the unsung heroes of the faith who have quietly but boldly lived for Christ and worship God in a way that they stood against the ungodly values of our culture. Those are the millions and even billions who have let their light shine out. So God has called you and I, let your light shine. Storm the gates of hell. That's what God has called us to. Jesus didn't say, he's, Jesus said, I don't want you to be ashamed of me. We're not called to be ashamed of him. There at the base of Mount Hermon, with that mountain cliff in front of them, in, in, in a city full of false gods and decadence and sensuality, you know, on steroids, so to speak, Jesus went on with this challenge. He said, what good will it be if a man gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Look around, Jesus said. These false gods that are among you right now, they promise prosperity and happiness and satisfaction and temporary fulfillment, but ultimately they're going to fail to deliver. They're going to cost you. They're going to cost you your very soul. You see, Jesus was also saying to you and I that the gates of hell will not prevail in our personal lives. That storming these gates of hell means that you and I, if you're a Jesus follower, that you have the Holy Spirit of power, of love, and self-control living inside of you. And because of that, we do not get caught up and seduced by the pleasures of the world. Sure, our Caesarea Philippi isn't worshiping gods in niches on mountains. 
or committing unspeakable sexual acts and claiming that it's worship. Our Caesarea Philippi has different names today. Things like, you know, internet pornography, adult entertainment, materialism, greed, self-indulgence, self-help philosophy, business, marriage, parenting, and financial success strategies that are devoid of godly values and principles. You see, today we tend to put our trust and our hope and our faith and we try, to find pros- in, we try to find prosperity and happiness in the modern idols, such as materialism, financial security, just being safe, sexual exploration outside of marriage, social media likes and views, and having that dominate our lives. The attractive uh, enticement away from a holy God is as real today as it's ever been. And that's why the Apostle Paul said this. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, For the grace of God has been, has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from, say turn from. We're instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. Say devotion to God. I want to ask you, What influences your life more, society or the Savior? Are you saying no to that which pulls you away from a close dynamic relationship with God? Are you living, as this passage says, in full devotion to God? Or are you saying yes to ungodliness, yes to sinful pleasures? See, if that's the case, God actually said the gates of hell do not need to prevail in your life. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he said, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. See, our world is filled with those who have gained the world, but they've lost their souls. You and I, we're called to his mission We're called to go on the offensive, to storm the gates of hell in our personal lives and in our culture. People's very souls, people's very eternity are at stake. Jesus challenged you and I to proclaim his truth without shame, to live out his truth. And Jesus knows the world will resist us, but he challenges you and I to go there anyway to build his church in the places that are the most morally decayed. For some, that's public activism and getting involved in politics on behalf of Christ locally, regionally, and nationally. For some, it's getting involved in the social type ministries for the poor or the enslaved. For some, it's boldly sharing your faith. For some, it's boldly reaching out to others and asking spiritual questions. For some, you pursue it by being highly relational and you lead people to Christ through your deep, close connections with others. For some, it's taking a stand and saying no when circumstances would require you to go along with ungodly behavior or ungodly values or practices. For some, it's a combination of any of these and more. God has called you and he's called me to represent his hope to a lost and broken and dying and sinful world. God has called you and I to be his givers of life to people who need him. And yes, 
living life right now in this pandemic, I want you to hear this. Jesus is still building his church. Did you catch that? Jesus is still building his church. The pandemic isn't stopping that. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands are still coming to Christ. Man, I would say this, you have an opportunity right now, more than ever, to share the reason for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. Do you realize that? You have that opportunity more than ever. This is one of the greatest times for Jesus to build his church. So to have the boldness, we must first answer the most important question of life and for which your eternity rests. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? It's the most important question you can ask. It's the most important question you can ever answer. He's the resurrected son of God. And so if you embrace him as your savior and as your Lord, then he's giving you the charge. Make disciples by going to the very heart of evil. He is using you to build his church at the very gates of hell. Evil, it will not overcome. You're called to storm the gates of hell in whatever circumstances, in whatever situations or environments you find yourself in. Who do you say that Jesus is to you? Today, I want to give you a chance to respond to that question, to answer that question. To say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. I accept him as my personal Lord and Savior. I want to give you an opportunity to do that now. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we come before you now recognizing that we know, I know, many of us who are watching and listening, we know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the, the resurrected Son of the living God. And so, Jesus, we come before you now to make that declaration once again. And maybe, God, for some, it'll be the first time they declare this. And so I'm asking, inviting everybody who's watching, who's listening, if Jesus is your Savior or you want him to be your Savior and Lord, I want to invite you to pray with me. Some of you, this is a recommitment. Some of you is praying it for the first time. Would you say something like this? It's not even the exact words, but it's more you'd mean it in your heart. Say something like this. Lord Jesus, I believe that you're my savior, that you came to die for my sins so that I could live. But I also believe that you were buried and that you rose from the dead three days later that you're alive today. And as best as I understand for the first time or God for the thousandth time, I declare Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. I'm choosing not to live for myself, but to live for you. So Jesus, here's my life. Take it and use it. Use me, God, to be part of making disciples and to storm the very gates of hell. I want to join you in that. God, I believe and I recognize you are mighty to save. In Jesus' name I pray. God, hear these prayers of every single person as we go live the life you've called us to, to storm the very gates of hell with your good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.